0: Are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field: sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius podcast with Richard Jacobs.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast. I have a uh, Robert stenick Bob Stenick. He's a professor of marine sciences, University of Maine. Um, he seems to focus a lot on on delicious buttery main lobsters, but you know more in their na- in their natural habitat but uh, Bob thanks for coming how are you doing I'm doing great uh, how are you doing? Good good yeah tell me about your uh, research what what does it involve
2: well i've been doing this for a long time got started working on lobsters around um, nineteen eighty three and um, at the time lobsters were thought to be. In steep decline, and I was seeing different things underwater. I was one of the first people to actually study lobsters in their natural habitat. And we started seeing populations go up, and really from about 1985 to 2016, we almost had a record uh, harvest every year. And uh, uh, since then, we've seen uh, landings decline to some degree, and we've seen other troubling signs like keeping track of the number of baby lobsters on the seafloor. And we started seeing those decline, and we we're wondering what's going on. So my research now is looking at uh, some factors that are indirect um, factors related to climate change. And I could explain it more, but I figured you'd... Uh... Yeah. yeah,
1: we'll get into that. So um, what differences have you noticed in studying lobsters in their natural habitat? Like, they had you do it? Did you uh, scuba dive down in the ocean and hang out with them for 15, 20 minutes? Or like, how had you observe them?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, really scuba diving is a uh, major uh, tool used for studying lobsters and uh, did a lot of experiments. We focused on, uh, you know, where baby lobsters came from, what lobsters eat, who eats them, um, what kind of habitats they prefer. Uh, how does this relate to the lobster fishery? But to get to deeper water, we used a uh, small two and four person submarines and remotely operated vehicles, which are little tethered robots, which we were actually doing this summer also. So uh, it's a, a challenge, but lobsters are very abundant in Maine. The most abundant uh, lobster in the world is the lobster on the coast of Maine. So a lot of these methods work pretty well, but still there's a lot of questions and uh, and that's really where we're going with all this. How, how the ecosystem is changing uh, in some ways positive, some ways negative to lobsters and what that might mean for the fishing industry.
1: So what's the role of lobsters in their various niches? What do they do?
2: Well, it's interesting. You know, there are different ways of thinking about um, organisms in in any ecosystem and in marine ecosystems. You have these critters you might call ecosystem drivers. Uh, If they're abundant, they fundamentally change the ecosystem. But then there are these ecosystem passengers. And that is, as the ecosystem changes, they change. And lobsters are really more ecosystem passengers than they are ecosystem drivers. So the changes that we're seeing, I think, uh, and, and nobody believes that the changes are the result of the lobster fishery. It's a very interesting fishery in that it may be the only fishery on the planet that's been targeted for 150 years, but is doing better today than ever before. But um, the, the, the question is, how is uh, is ecosystem change, whether it's warming sea temperatures, change in predators, ocean acidification, invasive seaweed, oxygen levels. What might be affecting lobster populations in the last several years? That's really what our focus is right now.
1: Yeah, I just don't know much about lobsters besides eating them. So, well, that's why I asked you, what, what are some details about them that you learned that are really interesting the public just has no clue about?
2: Well, most people would not, would be shocked to learn that, uh, lobsters live to be a hundred years old. Um, they, uh, the world record lobsters is nearly 50 pounds uh, in weight. Um, yeah, lobsters, uh, have, uh, they're very solitary and the only time they, uh, cohabitate, uh, with other lobsters is to mate. Uh, mating goes on after the female sheds her, her, uh, her shell and, um, and at that time, she sets out a, a waterborne hormone that, uh, re- that stops the, the, the male lobster's natural aggressive behavior. So he'll mate with her and he won't kill her. And uh, there have been experiments done because the, lob- the, the, the male lobster actually has to sense the female's hormone and uh, does that with these little smelling antennules, little antenna. And if you uh, disable those antennae, uh, the lobster will actually uh, eat the uh, the female that he's trying to mate with. It's 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 pretty nasty. But but uh, the the bottom line is that uh, the the female then has these uh, little packets of sperm. Uh, later, after the male's long gone, uh, she'll extrude the eggs. Uh, she fertilizes uh, the eggs with that sperm packet. She carries the eggs for nine to eleven months, and I think a lot of your viewers might understand what goes on with carrying your offspring for nine months and then the uh the the, the eggs will hatch and they'll be pretty, pretty big um incidentally it's possible then uh, a couple months later for the lobster to extrude eggs again and actually fertilize them from that same male uh spermatophores that he received on that mating event that oh, happened wow. two years ago yeah it's a Really oh, yeah. unusual. I don't I don't know another invertebrate capable of doing that, actually.
1: Yeah, you know, that that's really interesting because what's the condition of the spermatophores? If they're in the female lobster for a month or more, they must be kept alive and
2: how over do they interact
1: year. with the wow,
2: that's amazing. over a year. And and no, I, I actually don't know those details and they're interesting details. And it does uh, you know, they're The mating of the lobsters is probably closer to the sort of mating that wolves do, in that there is dominant males uh, and they are the the males that the females sort of quote unquote uh, want to mate with. They'll delay their molting uh, until they can mate with that dominant male. So you could actually have uh, an alpha male uh, really responsible for fertilizing a high percentage of the females in an area, and it may in fact. Con, you know, be two clutches of eggs over a two-year period. So that's different. And I, I think most people don't realize that. Um, but, uh, you know, the the focus that I've been having has more to do with just how lobsters interact in the seafloor and how the seafloor and the marine, coastal marine ecosystem in Maine is changing.
1: Yeah, well, uh, quick question, I guess, they, again, because I know so little about them. Um, you know, supposedly, like, I guess, when lobsters were first encountered, uh, they were, what, fed to prisoners and people thought they really had no value?
2: Well, you know, uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, stories like that. Some are probably true, and some are probably not true. But without a doubt, uh, big lobsters uh, were relatively abundant in relatively shallow water. I mean, relatively big lobsters. The, The industry began as a cannery. And in the 1800s, they were looking for lobsters that were over 10 pounds each, you know, really 10, 15 Maybe a 20-pound lobster would be ideal because you could. it's very good to, for the canning industry. By the 1880s, uh, some of the canneries were complaining that they're not finding as many 12-pound lobsters as they used to. Uh, and the fact is, almost none of your, your listeners uh, have probably ever seen or eaten a 10- or 12-pound lobster. Your typical lobster is roughly a pound, pound and a half in, in size. So it's a really different fishery back then than it is now. And at least some people believe that the reason why you actually had so many big lobsters is because lobsters are very susceptible to predators like cod. But when they get big and they've got big claws, they're relatively safe. And since, as I mentioned, they can live for a long time, you actually had a lot of big, old, nasty claw lobsters that were pretty safe from predators until humans came by.
1: Would, would uh, do the larger lobsters protect the smaller ones or at least the mother lobsters? Like how long do they guard their progeny for until what age?
2: Well, that is interesting. You know, when the female sheds and she's vulnerable and she's got, uh, the, you know, uh, she's just mated, uh, there uh, is some evidence that the males will guard the females. But by and large, the behavior that I've observed more than anything else is the females find a really good shelter where they're pretty safe. And then they don't go out until they harden up. And that might be a week or maybe at least three or four days. And um, once they're hardened up, um, I've handled, uh, oh, gee, at, at least thousands of lobsters. Um, and females with eggs are by far the most aggressive. Um, and even lobstermen, you know, they they uh, go through their trap. They open up a lobster trap and they reach in. and um, If a lobster is an egger, they're very careful because as soon as they start bringing their hand into the trap, that lobster will be uh, attacking uh, the lobsterman, And uh, they're very, very uh, aggressive when they have eggs. Um, Have you been
1: pinched by a lobster before?
2: I sure have plenty of times. And um, uh, yeah, (laughs) yeah. The secret when you're, sometimes when I'm doing my surveys, I'd say most of the time you might get one lobster, but sometimes you get two and occasionally you get three lobsters that you find within a square meter, all in different shelters. And so you grab them all before they can escape. And then you have the problem that you actually have to measure them and write down their size, uh, their sex, a number of different things, but you only have two hands. And so my writing slate is on one wrist, but I'm, Really lucky if I can hold two lobsters in one hand and then I have the other lobster and with that lobster in that other hand I have to manage my ruler. And the fact of the matter is that uh yes, there have been times when I didn't juggle it well and the lobster won the bout by, you know, muckling onto my onto my thumb.
1: You know what maybe you should do is if you can get like Amazon Alexa or something like that, or Google and you know, like you say Alexa. I have a two pound lobster, female, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then you went up to write anything, you know? Just an idea.
2: Right. They, they do make full face uh, masks, uh, full, full face masks that you can actually talk into and you could record uh, all the information. Uh, I don't do that in part because uh, technology is great, but when it fails, you are really sunk. And when I go down and I've got a lobster and I measure it and I write it down on a slate on my wrist, I know I'm going to have that, but I could imagine, you know, like doing a whole dive and finding out that it didn't record. <laughs> so uh, anyway, yeah, I hear you. There probably are better ways of doing it, but this is the way I've been doing it for uh, well over 20 years.
1: Based on the uh, growth rate of lobsters. So if I'm, if most of the time now people get a one pound or a pound and a half lobster, how old are they? And what is that doing to the lobster population? It's like, how old are they when they mate? And yeah. how old are the ones that are being eaten for the most part?
2: Yeah, that, that's a those are good questions. And, um, and actually it actually depends on where you are. Further south where water temperatures are warmer lobsters reach reproductive maturity uh, at a, a earlier time. Of, they're, re- they're reaching the, the harvestable size uh, at the same size, but they get there sooner, like five years, something like that down in Rhode Island. Uh, it's more like seven to maybe 10 years in Maine uh, before they reach reproductive maturity, uh, not reproductive maturity, harvestable size. Reproductive maturity uh, comes later, uh, except that there are recent studies that have been showing that lobsters are, are actually reproducing at smaller size now. And it may well be because they do reproduce at smaller size in warmer temperatures and the ocean is getting warmer. So on the coast of Maine, if you just work in the mid coast of Maine, as I have since the 1980s. Uh water temperatures warming and the reproductive lobsters are getting smaller.
1: But but again, uh how old are they? Like at what age do they tend to reproduce? You know, let's let'll just take Maine offshore,
2: yeah, you know, I the mean, average
1: age, and then what age do we eat them at?
2: It's we, we eat them at about let's say seven years, and they're reproducing at about eight to ten years uh you know, age. But uh lobster traps are very inefficient, and there have been studies that have shown lobsters going in and out of traps. Um, and when I, I published several papers on this, it's really kind of interesting, but you expect that you're going to be overfishing the stocks the way you do most things, but the number of traps actually has gone down since 1995 and the, no, the catch per trap has been going up steadily. Uh, so, uh, the population overall, and there's, there's also ways that, uh, the state and federal government, uh, trolls day trawls the uh, coastal waters uh, and offshore waters, and they document the abundance of lobsters. And And by and large, they've been going up in abundance. So this is a very interesting fishery in that uh, as we keep fishing them, their abundance keeps increasing. Has just,
1: anyone done in a, an experiment where you know a lobster is mated and they produce progeny? And then if there are uh, fewer males around, or if you take the progeny away, let's say after it's a year old, that that induces the female to use stored spermatophores to produce more? Could that be a reason why they're increasing instead of decreasing?
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
2: No, I, I mean, I don't think anybody's done that. And also, you have to realize that uh, a lobster goes through its uh, its period of time. It's carrying its eggs on, on, the, on its tail, on the bottom of its tail, you know, it's it, very obvious when you pick up a lobster that has eggs. When they hatch, that's it. Uh, and if the if the eggs abort, as happens sometimes due to you know handling or other stresses, there's no obvious change in lobster behavior. The lobster will continue to behave as they always have and go through a normal cycle. And it takes a period of time before new eggs are formed within the lobster. And then she extrudes them. Then she fertilizes them either with a recent or past spermatophore. Um, you know, I I think that lobsters uh, have a lot of instincts, but I've uh, never been very impressed with their intellect.
1: Do, so the lobsters, they don't care if the the baby's aboard or not. But do they care for the progeny? Do they teach them anything, or they just no, say like, "No, no, no, oh, no I have a nice day."
2: No, they're gone. And uh, and the the it's a good question about exactly how far from a from a mother lobster do the babies land. But uh, it's going to be it'll be miles, or it might even be you know, tens or 50 miles apart. Um, so uh, if one took a very careful genetic study uh, and had just tons of money, they may be able to figure out if there are any uh, offspring that uh, that are related in a, in a region where you find a, 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 a female, if any of her offspring are found in that area. But I would guess that would be a needle in a haystack and would be extraordinarily rare. Right.
1: So how does a fishery look? How
2: do you make a lobster fishery? Well, the interesting thing about this is that um, unlike most fisheries where uh, the concerns are biological, you know, are we fishing too many? We can't, they can't reproduce or we're, we're catching them when too small a size. There are really no biological concerns about lobsters uh, as they reproduce. Almost all the crises in most of the last 20 years have been economic. And uh, by that, I mean... Lobster is kind of a luxury food. So when we had the Great Recession, uh, people stopped buying lobsters. More recently, we've had, you know, with the uh, pandemic, uh, cruise ships, which account for 30% of all the lobsters caught in Maine, cruise ships simply stopped buying lobsters because they were out of operation. Wow. Um, exports to China, uh, very important. Uh, it, it started up in, with, over the last decade China was very interested in working uh, in Maine, uh, and uh, there were local distributors who were gearing up uh, for a very big Chinese market. But unfortunately, when the tariffs were put in place by our government, uh, the Chinese simply decided to um, do business with Canada. We subsequently removed the tariffs on lobsters, but the Chinese said, no, no, we're fine. We're just going to work with Canada. So we lost that market. There's also been uh, a fair number of incidents related to uh, our marketing to Europe. Before the COVID outbreak, there was concern about whether lobsters were escaping in Europe and, they, and there was an interest among some Swedish scientists to ban the import of live lobsters. That uh, ended up, the, the, the scientific evidence simply wasn't there. So that did not go forward. But Europe, just like the United States, has the same problem where suddenly the COVID outbreak was a serious problem and people were worried about where they're going to get toilet paper and they weren't that, they just certainly weren't buying lobsters. So the price per pound for lobstermen uh, at the dock was getting to be something like $2.50. And what we were buying them locally for $4.99 it was actually inexpensive for us to have a lobster dinner. Now, since then, the price of lobsters has gone up a little bit. But still, here in Maine, it's six ninety nine right now, a pound. Um, that's not oh, bad. Yeah. yeah. I
1: remember in um, 1987, I went to summer camp in Maine. Okay. And we had lobster. And it was like $2 for dinner. And I couldn't believe it, you know. And then, you know, I've, I've lived in New York and other places. And, like, lobster normally in a restaurant like, you know. $25, 30 dollars now. So it's that's uh, right, I, and that it needs to be. But it's a big difference.
2: That's a global phenomenon. I mean, if you go any place, you know, uh, in the world, and you order lobster, uh, it's expensive. the The cheapest lobster on the planet is the Maine lobster. But again, as you just said, if you buy it in Maine, it's actually pretty cheap. As soon as they export it, they charge the you know <laughs> the lobster price that restaurants ask, which is really expensive. Yeah,
1: yeah, it makes sense. So, um. You were talking about the ecology and how they kind of ride along with the the ecology, but they don't, uh, you know, they don't really shepherd it. So what's been happening, you know, to like Maine lobsters, for instance, whatever you observed over the past few years, what's going on?
2: Well, one of the things that we observed was lobsters like to live in shelters. You know, they're solitary critters. And um, so for uh, over a decade, uh, my group of students uh, and interns and myself, we would go out and we would Uh, measure the distribution, abundance, and body size and habitat use of lobsters. And we did that from 1989 to 1999. And I got a grant to look at it again. And I did those uh, dives last summer. And what we found was lobsters are no longer concentrated in shelters. They are distributed in other places. And the other thing that's interesting is the seafloor is covered with a shag carpet of seaweed, which is not native to uh, North America. And I became worried that uh, some of these changes may be making traditional lobster habitats hostile. And specifically, I'm wondering whether this seaweed, which is growing, but also rotting on the seafloor and warmer temperatures that tend to hold less oxygen, is there uh, an oxygen depletion going on inside traditional lobster shelters? And so this summer, we were diving with oxygen probes and recording oxygen meters. We're doing uh, experiments in the laboratory, looking to see if lobsters will tend to avoid shelters that have low oxygen in them.
1: What do those shelters look like? I mean, I imagine like a, you know, a rocky outcropping. Yep. Where, is there any coral in Maine? I mean, what- where no, shelter? There's,
2: there's not stony coral the way you might expect to see them in the Florida Keys or in the Caribbean. Um, but if you go to a boulder field, Uh and boulders are stacked on top of themselves. Uh, you know, you can find these crevices between the boulders that you could stick your arm into and uh, Typically, uh lobsters are curious and their eyesight's not very good. So as you're approaching uh, A boulder field uh, often you'll see the lobster antenna coming out trying to sense what is coming its way So right away you start seeing where the lobsters are and uh, back in the day it was you know 20 years ago or so you know, every single shelter would have antenna coming out. That's not the case now, but it's interesting because the lobsters are just sitting on top of ledge and they're sitting on top of sediment. So you can just see the lobsters there, but they're not in the shelters. And the question is, why are we seeing this change in their behavior? Is it due to something like oxygen or is it simply the fact that there are literally no predators anymore because we've overfished cod and other things that would be eating lobsters? So the lobster's don't quote need to be in shelters we don't know the answer to that yet
1: hmm so um, why would you think that the oxygen level in their shelters has gone down is it because just are there dead zones in and around the coast of Maine or what would create uh, this low oxygen level if you're hypothesizing it
2: yeah, you don't you don't typically think of Maine because of its cold water having dead zones, but you don't have to go very far like in Mass in within Cape Cod uh, down in Massachusetts uh Cape Cod Bay, uh there are areas of depleted oxygen. The the trouble is that uh when you have a lot of organics, whether it's uh due to fertilizer coming down in estuaries or whether it's due to seaweed that's rotting on the seafloor, um Uh, there's a certain amount of oxygen used up by microbes and how much oxygen is in the water depends on how cold the water is. You know, I think all of your listeners probably realize that if you have a carbonated drink and it's in the refrigerator and you open it up, uh, it just does a little fizz. But if you put it on the dashboard of your car and you warm up that liquid and then you open it up it'll explodes, And that is the warm... Warm liquids just simply can't hold as much dissolved gas, and that holds for oxygen. And we know the Gulf of Maine is one of the warm, fastest warming bodies of water on the planet. There have been reports that it's warming faster than 99% of the world's oceans. And with that warming, there are these secondary effects of climate change, such as the possibility that there's lower levels of oxygen, especially at night. Lobsters go out and they forage at night. And then uh, as sun is just coming up, when oxygen levels would be the lowest, that's when they choose their shelters. It's possible that they're not choosing shelters because overnight seaweed been rotting in there mm. and, uh, and they, they just decide I'm not going there. And they don't need to because there aren't any predators out there to eat them.
1: Well, how much of an oxygen level difference and a water temperature difference are the ones that you can access by scuba? the shallow ones versus the deep ones
2: right and that is what we're doing right now and and uh and so far we we've definitely seen uh variations from day to night we definitely see lower levels of oxygen in shelters versus outside shelters but until we've really analyzed all the data i i don't don't really want to go out on a limb except to say it is what we're studying right now it's kind of the cutting edge for my lab in terms of is this an issue or not we just don't know yet
1: well I don't know if you've gone recently to, you know, again, even 15, 20 minutes or an hour to hang out, you know, in under the water with the lobsters. Like, have you done that recently? And you know, are you observing differences in behavior? You know, like what what interesting stuff have you seen by hanging out, you know, underwater near the lobsters?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've I've been diving with lobsters within the last two weeks, if that's what you mean. Uh and um you, the thing is you know, as I said, lobster's eyesight's not that great, but um, th- they're big antenna that everybody would recognize. Those are those uh, are mechanoreceptors and they can detect vibrations. And uh, as a scuba diver, every time you exhale and you send out bubbles, that's like a hand grenade going off next to a lobster. They hate that. So when I'm approaching a lobster, I can see it in, in its shelter and I'm approaching it to catch it. And then I measure uh, its vital signs. And then I put it back in the shelter. Um, but I have to hold my breath. Uh, I don't change my water depth. That's a, a scuba no-no. But I hold my breath so that I don't exhale. If I exhale uh, before I capture the lobster, he will just retreat way deep into the shelter. I'll never get him.
1: What do you mean a, a grenade going off? Like So if there's a bunch of bubbles, what is the lobster sensing? And it just literally runs? Yeah, the lobster...
2: You know, the lobster, you know, they look like they've got this hard shell and they, you know, they sh- should be uh, impervious to anything. But no, actually, they've got these hairs called sensory CD and they're quite good at detecting any kind of motion. Uh, but, and I've, I, when I use my remotely operated vehicle, it has little propellers. I can actually get pretty close to the lobster. That doesn't bother it. But when, as a scuba diver, you exhale, that is, uh, effectively sends out a shock wave. That they pick up and they always react to it. As a matter of fact, you know, if you've ever done any diving in the in the tropics, reef fish do the same thing. You you uh, have to be careful how you control your breathing. And for a lot of people who uh, study fish and some other organisms, they have rebreathers so that they're not exhaling into uh, into the water. I I simply have techniques that allow me to do my work uh, under normal scuba rather than having to use a rebreather. But that's, you know, decades and decades of observations of lobsters. And I know that they are very sensitive to human presence on scuba. And the reason why I mention this is that you're asking me, you know, wouldn't it be cool just to watch their behavior? And the only way I've been able to watch their behavior for extended periods of time is with my remotely operated vehicles. Um, I've actually built these hangars where I, I could fly the remotely operated vehicle into a little device, it would hold them steady and I could watch them for hours. And I've done that.
1: Oh, um, I'm gonna ask you about that in a second, but you know how uh, people will smoke bees and kind of calm them down so they can be worked with. What if you set up like a deliberate, slow, steady bubble near the lobster and maybe at first it runs, but then it gets used to it. And if it's getting this continual like, you know, pulse, pulse, pulse of the bubbles, and it's regular, maybe that would lull it into uh, being desensitized to other stimuli.
2: Well, that's interesting. Certainly never tried that. Um, my my sense is, because I work with a lot of different organisms with uh, different levels of, of cognitive capacity, I would say. And uh, my sense is that lobsters really, they have entrained instinctive behaviors, but they don't look to have a lot of obvious learned behaviors. And one of the things that I've, I've noticed, for example, is that, and I published a paper on this, but lobsters, you know, they're they're not only very solitary living in single shelters, but they don't want any other lobster living near them. So at, when lobsters are abundant and w- when their range, let's say a, a, a lobster that's close to harvestable size, the kind you might get on, see on your plate, it can detect any lobster that's roughly within a, a meter of it. And when i did experiments where i had lobster shelters and i and i changed the shelter spacing so they got closer and closer the lobsters were evicting the other lobsters that were within its range of detection yeah. and you know they and they would be fighting sometimes all day long it's it's really they only need one shelter but they would keep fighting with these other lobsters and one of the things that i observed was these lobsters after they would have all these competitive bouts they would then leave this whole arena and they would go to a place where there are just fewer lobsters. And I call that demographic diffusion. It doesn't really matter what the term is, but it's, it means that these lobsters that are capable of winning their bouts are actually choosing to go to areas where population densities are lower just because they don't have to fight all day. And that means that they're not able to just turn off that fighting instinct. They have to leave. So it's, a, it's an anger management behavior they have.
1: Well, I guess one thing I realized, and, you know, I'm just, this is just my experience. It's probably the same as other people, but the only time I've really been able to observe lobsters much, like I remember being a kid and going to red lobster and they'd have them all in the tank and they'd have rubber bands around some of their claws and, right. you know, at a Chinese restaurant. But now I, I see it with different eyes. Like it's, it's sad because probably the lobsters are all really stressed and they hate being there on top of each other. And then, yep. you know, if you want to have a delicious lobster, you probably wouldn't taste very good. They're probably full of stress hormones and all that. and Not good to eat.
2: That's that's an interesting point. And I don't know if anybody has looked for stress hormones, but you may well be right.
1: Anything you've observed from like handling really old lobsters versus young ones, do they seem to learn any behaviors or become more crotchety when they're older or like <laughs> what have you crotchety. observed in age?
2: Well, the biggest thing that's obvious to me, uh, handling big, really big lobsters is how slow they are. You know, a smaller lobster can, you know, it can, catch you off guard and it it could clamp down on you but these big lobsters and I'm talking about lobsters that uh when I'm when I'm uh seeing them underwater and catching them I can't I can't pick them up with one hand because their their carapace their back is too broad I have to use two hands but as I do that uh and that lobster you know he'll he'll lift he or she it's usually a he because they grow a little bit faster at that size they actually lift up their uh their claws when I pick them up and uh the claws might be at, the, at at the about the height of my shoulder and their tail is down around where my knee is. And those are the really big ones that I picked up. They uh you know, I think that they really uh, uh you know, I don't want to ascribe fear or anything like that to a lobster because I think they mostly just react on behavior, on instinctual behaviors, but um a lobster of that size really does not have anything to worry about. Uh, you know, the biggest cod that ever lived could not eat a lobster of that size. And so it's only really humans. And also, the lobster traps are designed so really big lobsters literally cannot get into a lobster trap. They're not marketable. So, uh, at least not in Maine, there's a maximum size above which you can't harvest them. So, when I've been out working with lobstermen, on one, On occasions, we picked up really big lobsters, but the way we've done is the lobster was on top of the trap, not in the trap. Oh, okay. And we pick it up and then we look at it and then we throw the lobster back in the water.
1: Yeah, I've heard, um, again, this comes from my, you know, (laughs) commercial restaurant experience, but I remember I took my kids to a restaurant a few years ago and they they pulled out one of the lobsters so they could touch it. And and then the person said, like, you have to be careful how you put it back in the tank because if you put it back in suddenly, I guess air bubbles will get trapped in the carapace and it could hurt the lobster or kill it.
2: Well, you do have to be careful how you handle a lobster. Uh, air bubbles in the carapace is probably not an issue, but um, if a lobster is, is roughly handled, they actually have uh, the capacity to uh, excise their claws. It has its own name autonomy, but, um, uh, and so the lobster actually will throw, you know, and then lobster can say they threw a claw. And that, of course, reduces, actually pretty much crashes its market value. So you have to be careful about that. Uh, lobsters that do that in lobster traps are sometimes set aside uh, for either to to bring it home, to eat it uh, at home, or it can go into a lobster chowder, but it's not likely going to have great value uh, when it's sold as a live lobster.
1: Um, I mean, they, they just like, they, they drop a claw, they pinch it off yep. and lose it.
2: Yep. Yep, absolutely right. And, I, and it has happened to me, and I, I hate it when it happens. But as you can imagine, I'm working underwater, and I, if I've got a lobster and uh, I'm pulling it out of its shelter, uh, I can actually feel this click. And what and I usually, uh, I, I almost never will grab the claw. I'm always trying to grab the carapace. But, you know, as I'm pulling it out, uh, the claws are right there, and sometimes I feel that click, and I know it's a cull. Um, that's what they call it. A call is a lobster with either one claw or no claws. And, uh, how,
1: how, could, how could the lobster do like, have you looked at it under the, I mean, just visually or under the microscope? Like, what, how does the lobster do that?
2: Yeah, no, there's, there's a good biology around it. They actually have a way, you know, they have an open circulatory system, but they actually have a way of, of basically cutting, cutting off, um, you know, all the blood, uh, they don't lose, they don't bleed out when this happens. Um, And there's a plate basically that that seals that. It's not that uncommon. And imagine a lobster that is uh, only able to grow when it molts, and it may molt uh, when it's getting close to harvestable size. It's only molting one or maximally two two times in a summer. But if they lost their claw, they can produce this little leathery limb bud, and it's a funny little thing. Um, It looks like a claw. It's not functional but uh, it'll actually get to be an inch or two long. And then the next time they molt, uh, there'll be a somewhat smaller, uh, but not tiny claw. And then the next time they molt, it'll be a full-size claw. And so they can recover from that. They can regenerate their claws. And uh, I guess the evolutionary thinking here is it's always better to lose a claw than lose a life.
1: Yeah, that's just amazing they can do that. Like, I mean, it's weird. Like what happens to their flesh inside? I mean, what? Oh well, how does it segment off like that without it like bleeding to death? And does it it, cauterize? Like what does it do?
2: Well, it is, it would be closest to being cauterized, uh, but it's not, it it has this uh, abscission plate. I think it's called, that seals it off. But, but the fact is there is meat there and I've never done it. uh, And I don't think I could legally do it, uh, but you could take that claw home and pop it in boiling water and have have a meal out of it and as you may know there are some fisheries for crabs like the florida mud crab fishery it's a claw only fishery so they catch the crab in traps and they pull the claws off and they throw the crab back in the water yeah it's been discussed for lobsters but it's not a good idea in part because their mating and their competitive ability and everything is linked to their claw size and so you really are messing with them in a big way by removing their claws.
1: Well, if you remove the uh, smaller male one claws, you know, one claw of the smaller males, they're probably not gonna mate much anyway. I guess it would predispose like the biggest, baddest ones to mate more, but I don't know.
2: You might be right, but um, but again, the, the real money in lobsters is selling whole lobsters, uh, and you know the size that you typically see. And so uh, that's the product that the 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 lobster want to bring into the market.
1: Yeah, interesting. I I think it's so interesting. It's rare to find someone like you, so it's really cool to talk to you about this stuff. And I'm I'm genuinely curious about them.
2: Yeah. Well, it is. It's a curious fishery, and it happens to be the single most valuable species to the fisheries of the United States. Oh, I mean, you can yeah, you can think about you know like Alaska salmon or something, but that's actually multiple species, and no single species of salmon is worth as much as our American lobster.
1: Have you, um, have you sequ- genetically sequenced lobsters or have you looked at like their microbiome or other animals or other creatures living on or in and around their shells or fish that, that hang out with them?
2: I, I haven't, but you know, lobsters have been studied up and down in part because you could be a biologist in Nebraska and go to a grocery store and get a, a lobster that you could study. So uh all these things uh physiology of lobsters is pretty well known um I I can't say I've read any papers on on uh gene sequencing in lobsters but I'd kind of be surprised if they haven't done that uh and uh uh yeah I mean there are organisms that are associated with lobsters uh there's uh I think there was a a new organism that was found on the lip of a lobster a couple of years ago uh you know, new to science. And, uh, so, you know, it is, a uh, kind of a, a walking, uh, micro community, especially because the shells, the bigger they get, the, uh, less frequently they molt. So a, a big lobster, the kind I'm talking about when I need two hands to pick it up, they typically have these big old barnacles on them. Uh, you know, they've got stuff growing on their back. Uh, it, it's been five years or more since they've shed uh, into a new uh, into a new shell. So uh, yeah, it's a little walking community. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, very good. Well, Bob, what's the best way for people to learn more about your work?
2: Well, you know, they can certainly just Google, uh, you know, Stenick, uh S T E N E C K, and um, you'll see, uh, you know, plenty on Google. And also, Google Scholar shows the papers that I've written about lobsters, but also Uh, There's a lot written about lobsters. So uh, there's everything from children's books to uh, every detail that you want to know. And it's all sitting there online for all these people who are sheltering in place. There's plenty to read
0: out there.
1: Okay, Very good. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. You
0: bet. My pleasure. You take care. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.